Pokemon, Henry, Redding. The voice River Radio of the Tech. Good morning, I'm Ronnie Singh and I'm here on River Radio to present a brand new show for you called The Big Question. I'm going to be here with you each week with a special guest from any walk of life. It could be a TV boss, it could be an RAF fighter pilot, or a world memory champion, all of which I've got coming up over the coming weeks, or any other fascinating individual. I'm going to try and get inside their heads a bit and get them to tell us all about themselves. You'll get a chance to send in questions, I'll chat to them and find out how they got to where they are, and we'll play a few tracks that have got something to do with their, each of them. I'll be looking at the week's national headlines and having a scan of the local papers to pick up on something that's happening in the Thames Valley area. But I'm joined here in the morning in, in the River Radio studio this morning um, by my producer and co-host Sam Setti, who's also the MD of River Radio. I'm a lucky girl. Hi, Sam. Good morning, Rani. I'm used to producers being separated from me by a glass partition, so this feels really cosy with just sitting opposite you. I'll go and sit on the other side if you want. <laughs> no, no, no. Sam's going to make me into a proper grown-up radio presenter-producer, I think. Anyway, so let's start with a feel-good tune from my childhood. It was introduced to me by a lady I came to see as a second mother, Jean Brady. She and her husband were good friends of my parents and I spent a lot of time with them as a child growing up in London. She loved Louis Armstrong's Wonderful World. Great. Enough energy? Yeah, is good. Um, I think um, going forward, I think unless you're used to writing a lot of notes. No, I don't. No, it doesn't feel natural. No. I think what you what you want to do is bullet point things. Yes. I know I know because it's your first show you want to get it right, but I think for your sanity because yeah. if you remember if you if you're trying to do this every week it's yeah. a lot of work. Right? Yes. So what I would suggest is let me just I check. Do the, I do the, like I do for the five live just bullet yeah. points or drawings. Yeah. Let me just check our voices aren't being picked up, which was what happened as a bug yesterday. It is. Yeah. Hold on a sec. Don't know what that's doing. Okay, I'm just going to test it. Shouldn't be coming through. Hopefully that's stopped it. Okay, I'm just going to test it. No. here on River Radio Sunday morning and I'm here with my producer and co-host Sam City. Hello. Hi Sam. So um, where did you start your career Sam? Oh me? Yes. Gosh. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. Um, 
radio career uh, only recently, um, four or five years ago, uh, on another radio station near here. And before that, I was a DJ in my dim, distant youth as a teenager. But um, no, in between that, I never touched it. So yeah, radio has been something that's come to me later in life. After phenomenally successful careers in other areas. Uh, Yeah, not too bad. Not too (laughs) bad. Yeah, I've been in the IT industry for quite a while. I worked for companies like Microsoft, you may have heard of them, and Netscape, and then I did several of my own startups. So, yeah, IT's been my blood. So, um, I'm supposed to be talking about myself a little bit too. Oh, yes, you are. (laughs) So, um, I, I asked you where you started off so I could sort of talk about where I started off too I started off storytelling with puppets um, in schools and then I then I got taken up onto kids TV right and started storytelling there and I used to do things like nursery rhymes and and stories and uh, for instance there was one little rhyme with 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 where you put make your hands into a butterfly shape right. or a little bird shape and when I used to do them on play school for instance i uh, actually, the play school. Yes, the play school. Blimey. No, the play school TV. Yes. Play school, the programme. Yeah, I know. Yes, that's yeah. very famous. Yes. Through the round window and Indeed. all that. Indeed. Yeah. My word. That, that, was where, that was where I sort of started off in kids TV. Wow. Um, uh, writing and presenting there. And I'd do these nursery rhymes and these songs. And when I'd be in the supermarket the following weekend, once I was by the freezer counter and I found a child mimicking the butterfly song. And Perfect. she had, to, when she saw me, she, she put her hands into a butterfly shape. And I thought, wow, that's the power of television. That when it dawned, that's when it dawned on me yeah. that telly and radio have this power. And then I started doing more and more of that kind of thing, working on Rainbow and, and doing Okay, drama. okay, hang on a minute. Hang on, you're going through every one of my childhood <laughs> dreams. We're talking Rainbow as well. Yeah, Jeffrey Bungle and Zippy. Ah, uh, 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 Bungle? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, what's Ronnie doing here today, Ronnie? I'm going to tell you a story. Yes. Oh, my God. So you, you, Sorry, my brain's just exploded because I know what's coming next as well. So, so hang on. Let's backtrack. So you were there on play school and then you were there on Rainbow. Yeah, I, I sort of did guest weeks and guest appearances, right. storytelling and doing songs. Gosh. So whenever... And there were very, very few sort of... Asians in telly at that time, especially in kids' telly. Yes. So, um, I, you know, the, the TV companies like ITV and BBC used to call me up quite a lot. So I would do sort of weeks of them and just rotate. And it was really good fun. And that time ITV was not far from here in Twickenham. Uh, so you can imagine going to the studio. You know I'm going to have to find showreels of this. <laughs> These will be up on our social media at Facebook River Radio Live. Uh, uh, yeah, we're going to have to. I mean, it's, it's, it's part of history. It is. I, I didn't know then... But uh, these programmes, iconic programmes like Play School, are very much people part of uh, people's childhood memories. Yes. And uh, and mine too. Children's telly was really... Re- oh, I'm sorry, my phone suddenly started ringing. Very unprofessional not to uh, have switched it off. They would have um, had you on Rainbow there. <laughs> <laughs> they would have done. I'd have got the instance act. Um, so please forgive me, listeners. Um, but... Uh, 
from there, I moved on to children's drama mm-hmm. and series like Running Scared and and adult drama, and again was rotating. You know where the jobs. Did you go were. to a drama school then? I did. I did a drama degree. Uh, actually, it was. I think I was the first Asian to do this BA in performance arts at Middlesex Poly, as it then was. Right. And it had really, really good. Um, good directors and a good head and and uh, like charles maravitz who's a famous uh, th- american director he came over and taught us and the guy who founded hampstead theater so yeah that's where we learned our craft mm. and so wh- where did you move on from there then from uh, from kids yes yeah, so you were talking about moving into drama itself that's it i was doing dramas um and then as it happened um my uh one of the uh people who'd been on the play school team she went and she got to be the head of publicity jilly sutton i hope she'll come on at some point or talk to us lovely um and um and uh she went and she became the head of publicity at eastenders and she gave me a call and asked if i'd join you know that they were looking for an asian lead um and it had come up and was i interested and she said and and when i said yes she said well get on to your agent then so i did and then an audition was arranged and the people who created eastenders julia smith and tony holland they're legendary names now in in uh, bbc drama um uh, they the audition rooms at that stage were in Acton, not far from where I lived, and so I, I trotted along and did this audition, and I think they liked the fact that I had already ha- got a child audience, yeah. and I could write and pr- stuff. So they they took me on as an actor, but they also said, "Will you advise on the show on costume and storyline?" And you know, they wow. even came round to my house and asked if I'd talk to them about how, what our house might look like on set. Gosh, didn't look like my house, but kind of blend of right. <laughs> different yes. houses. You have to have one of those photos there, and one of those <laughs> statues there. <laughs> yeah, so that was a good a good few years, and then. It, what it taught me, um, I'd already learnt about the kind of the power of television, Sam, but what it taught me was, because I'd been in kids, um, being, you know, EastEnders at that time had 20 million viewers. It was at its height. Right. And um, so that meant that one in four people on the street um, was watching it. And it kind of put you into popular culture, and that was a new experience for me, completely new. And um, and that was a heady experience, a really heady experience. And you got to see, you know, how much people, how much that programme, in fact, could influence people. So I'm glad that my character was sympathetic. What was the name of your character? Uh, Sufia Kareem. All right. And she was sympathetic. She had a husband who used to have lots of... Um, away plans shall we say away days yeah away days away nights and evenings um with various who uh, was the actor um it was uh aftab sachuk i think yes yes uh and um uh, so I had lots of scenes where I, where he failed to turn up for a dinner I'd cooked and I would be crying into it, you know, as, as the drum beats went boof, boof, boof. Um, and that was, th- and that also actually was really good, really hard work. For instance, we'd get the scripts on a pizza delivery bike, you oh, know, right. in a brown jiffy bag on a, th- on a Friday, you'd you'd familiarise, you'd be into rehearsing in Acton on, on the weekend, then you'd be up to Elstree Studios on a Monday and there'd be a tech run and a rehearsal 
run and then all the producers would be walking around the sets examining how good you were on your lines and and the writers always overwrote so if you were at all loose or you hadn't remembered everything properly, they would drop your scene. Really? Yeah. Gosh, they were that harsh. It was I guess, a tough. I guess they have to be, because if you don't, if you haven't put the work in, why should they give you the time? Exactly, exactly. And it was a BBC success, you know, at that time. So how long, so. How long were you on EastEnders for? I was, there, I was there for over two years, about over... Sort was of that the, with the family written out, or was that uh, because you decided to leave? What was no, the reason? No, what happened was they wanted to bring in a new family, a new bunch of people. Right. And the only way they could do that, because it was a company of actors of about 30, was to move, get rid of or, or move, shall we say, a whole group rather than just two or three because they'd have to do separate storylines. So they simply moved us to Bristol, but they kept my part open. Okay. So they said if so you want to... might come. see Ronnie back. <laughs> I'd you love never know that. that. <laughs> <laughs> She's back on the square. It's Ronnie Singh. <laughs> You know, um, I'd love to. I'd love to go back, and especially because lots of others have gone back. The people from my time, June and, um, well, not June now, but um, uh, Letitia Dean and uh, Gillian Tailforth, they're, they're still there. But uh, was the Ross, was Mr Ross there? Yeah, he was there. You know he lives in the village? Uh, yes, I heard that. Yeah, he, he lives up in the village next to, well, not next door to me, up on the green. Is he a buddy of yours? You know everybody, Sam. I wouldn't say he's a buddy, but I do speak to him and I, I do know him. I mean, he keeps himself to himself. And, yes. You know, he does, he does, he, he's, he likes to keep himself in the village f- for certain events, but he does like his privacy. So we give him that. But he's got a golden retriever like me. So we have something in common. I have spoken to him a few times. Yeah. He's a nice chap. Yeah, he, he yes, he's affable and um, surprisingly, given his hard guy image... He's not hard. He's not hard at all. <laughs> um, and he, actually, he's had the kind of career that I really think is quite admirable in terms of what he did after EastEnders. Yeah, I think the documentaries he's done have given him a lot of credibility. Yes. Um, he's put himself in, you know, where you get Louis Theroux in what I'd call great interviews but in what I'd call a soft interview in terms of, you know, he's with a family, he's doing stuff. But, you know, Ross has gone straight into the middle of a Nicaraguan drugs den, you know, and they're pulling guns on him. That's pretty hardcore, I'll give him that. Um, Most people would, you know, run a mile. So, yeah, no, he's got a lot of credibility. And I think he did recently, he was looking at prisons and so he's he's tackling very hard-hitting documentaries, which, yeah, well done. I think it's after you after you come off that show. If you position yourself right, yeah, um, you can do all sorts of things. And I think there's a whole. Um, I'm so sorry that my my phone keeps going off. Um, Sam, I've switched it off now. Um, and <laughs> listeners, um, I don't think I'll be invited back for a second show here <laughs> at this rate. Um, you know, there's a whole show to be done about what happens when you leave that show because if you do, I. What people don't realise is that it's not about you. It's a show that makes you on a machine like EastEnders. And if you're like me, you really identify with your work. And I, I really did. It went to my head a lot. So after, after the show finished, I was a bit lost. Mm-hmm. And That's that understandable. Does, that does happen to a lot of actors. But I think what Ross... Um, what Ross Kemp did was he he'd got himself into a position where he was already talking to production companies and saying that um, 
saying this is what I want to do when I leave, and so he was he was in a in a prime position to go and do that, and I I did find my feet eventually, but for a while I I I was a bit lost, and right. then um, uh, a great um, actress, a great British actress who's still with us, Vanessa Redgrave, um, she sort of picked me up and she she was doing a lot of, she does a lot of work with charities and she was doing a lot with UNICEF at the time. And um, so she has a habit of sort of collecting people around her. And she (laughs) was doing, (laughs) and for these things, along with her late brother, Corin, and they were doing a, a concert over at the Royal Albert Hall and she asked if I'd join join them and so there I was suddenly on stage with uh, within the space of about 24 hours with um, Duran Duran Simon Le Bon Chrissy <laughs> okay. Hind what are you doing here I mean seriously what are you doing on River Radio I mean it's 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 the ultimate come down for you <laughs> I am just just really having a well of time this is my past I don't I don't have that it's kind like of lifestyle hell of a past and um, so they and uh, and Chris Christopherson was there, and so she got me doing stuff and that. But I remember one time, Sam, she was um, I was just outside her flat in West London, and she put her hand on my cheek and she she looked into my eyes and she said, "Ronnie, I'd really like you to do meaningful work." And um, that sort of set my brain thinking. And I thought, well, she's really involved in international affairs. And I had a bit of an interest in that from my own family background. So then I sort of, I was, I competed for a place to be a Radio 4 producer over at BBC. And went to Factual and started doing news and current affairs and documentaries. And that's when I had to sort of um, junk that soap, um, sort of soft kind of actory image and become a very serious person so now i'm a very serious person whose phone goes off in the studio well i'm just going to play you this bit and that you might remind you bit of EastEnders there for you. <laughs> Just thought I'd bring that back for I you. I always feel good when I hear that, you know, for, for all that time and afterwards, because the, the repeats were showing around the world for a long time and I did get, I got the odd royalty here and there, not now, but, you know, it was always showing on UK Gold and you sort of have a bit of a shelf life for about one or two years, I'd tell other, I'd, you know, so people still recognise you. Um and uh, but after that, anyway, I had to sort of junk that image, and I I thought, oh, the intelligent people in television are are all in the newsrooms, aren't they? So they look very serious. So I went and I started training to be a journalist, and um, it, you know I slept in studios overnight trying to get things on air in the mornings, and I really worked hard at the craft. And eventually, I got trusted. I got sent out into Pakistan, to India. I went to Kashmir. I went into. I was sent on to cover into jail. Um, I went into. I went to Italy and started working with kids of the mafia, um, and uh, stories like that. Working on F one and theme parks, and um, eventually. Uh, so I had a good time doing print and everything, and uh, eventually I thought, well, I 
I need to get a family story written because there was one in, I'm sure you've got lots as well, Sam, but there was one in my family because my uncle was involved in the rescue of the Dalai Lama from China in 1959. Wow. And my uncle was in his 90s and Dalai Lama's in his 80s. So I thought if I don't do it, you know, time is going to tick on and we may lose the story. So I took some time away from telly and radio to do that. And Virgin Media helped a lot. They got me a book with Virgin Books to to tell the story. And they sponsored a shoot so that when I got my interview with the Dalai Lama interviews, then they... Okay, hang on a minute. (laughs) Sorry. So, so far you've gone in... So you've done Play School Rainbow. And the, the big one, the big reveal is still not been revealed. And I know what it is. So there's a big one coming in a minute. Um, but you've just said you've interviewed the Dalai Lama. Yeah. My yeah. word. A few times, yes. Gosh. To do this story. Have you got his number? Can I give him a call? <laughs> he's got, you know, he's a world leader, so he's I got... Know. The... How do you address him? Hi, Dai. <laughs> what, Mr. Lama? What, what? Your Holiness. Your Holiness. That yeah. would be appropriate. But seeing as you're a megastar in this region and in the world no. of uh, technology, I should have a term for you, especially as I know that you have all the accoutrements and you live in a fancy village and you. I've even heard that you have um, a substantial vehicle that goes out on the river. So what are you? Are you your, your technology-ness or <laughs> no. your MD-ness? No, I think janitor is... <laughs> Janitor is basically the level I'm attaining to. Let's not get any higher and above my station. Your producerness. Yeah, maybe. Anyway, back to the Dialama. Forget about me. You were telling me about the Dialama. That was much more important. Now, what happened? He's a he's he's a very interesting guy. Um, he's probably my toughest interview. Okay, why? Um, he doesn't allow any interjections. He's very familiar with media and journalists and he knows exactly what we do and so you can try and say your holiness and interrupt as much as possible he will just ramroad you and finish his sentence and you have to get it on film and that's it fine he wants to say his piece he doesn't need to he's using you as a vehicle but you know the inter- the fir- well the first interview was lovely it went for 45 minutes and um he did let me ask questions but just a few and just at the end um and we were in his uh, i used to call it his palace his rather beautiful abode in uh, the northern india in, in northern india in the hills surrounded by police and security as you mm-hmm. can imagine yeah. with lots of layers to get through and um, and then I then I was a bit cheeky because I heard that very few journalists had been to his garden, were invited to his garden. Mm. So I said, I he- I hear you like flowers and your garden, Your Holiness. Um, I'd love to take a look. We're here for another night. Would you allow me for and my cameraman in? And then he said, Oh, oh, well, uh, and then he said, Oh, yes, in morning. I go in garden. So I, um, so he did, we were allowed in. I was going to say, an amazing Yoda impersonation there. <laughs> garden we go, bright light. He is, he is a bit like an elderly Yoda. I, I can imagine that. He yes. sits there quietly, comes out with words and then just walks off and wafts. Exactly. Probably he floats somewhere, probably. Yeah, well, you know, he put he's had some upbringing. He does loads and loads of meditation and all the rest of it. And so you know you're looking at somebody who's put the graft in and um i think i think if you're a religious person yeah i mean 
unfortunately, I'm not religious. So as much as I admire the man for his dedication, I'm not aligned with his beliefs. Yes. But that's fine. That's fine. Look, let's have some music. Yes. And then when we come back, we're going to have the big reveal of what other show you've been in. And I just blew my head when I found that one out. And I'm going to blow your head because I know the place where she was buried as well, which is not far from here. Ronnie's looking at me going, what the hell's he talking about? Well, you'll find out when we come back.
amazing Eva Cassidy, long gone but never forgotten. What an amazing album, that first album. Well, only album, actually, sadly, that she brought out. But uh, a beautiful track, Over the Rainbow. Because you were on Rainbow, was that, was that why we were playing that? No, partly, but it was always, it was always a favourite of mine. It, it, it's always a favourite of mine. A friend of mine, Brenda, has done a beautiful art piece for me with, with that song on it. Um, and but really also it's about finding your dreams and um, after after Enders when I really thought about what I wanted to do and I had space and time to do it yeah um, things like going out to Kashmir you know and uh, going and interviewing the Dalai Lama these were dreams of mine these were challenges I set myself so that's why I that's mainly why I chose that song Sam and I particularly like that rendition of it yeah no it's lovely now the one thing that we haven't talked about is the thing you told me about the other day. So I'm going to let you explain what other character you've played on TV. Yeah. Well, um, after after EastEnders, um, Terry Marsh, who's going to be coming on, I hope, well, actually next week. Next week. Um, she was she had she was very powerful at school at schools TV BBC, and she bought some episodes of Thunderbirds, and she um, had them translated into French, Hindi, and Welsh. And very kindly, she gave me the part of the wonderful Lady Penelope in Hindi. So suddenly, I discovered all about this magnificent character and her origins and she was based on Jerry Anderson the creator's wife um, Sylvia Anderson co-creator of Thunderbirds yep. and then serendipity Sam you told me about the important local links just a stone's throw from here yeah so in Marlowe Jerry Anderson used to drink in a pub by uh, the Cookham train station it's now a Costa Coffee sadly and it was an Indian restaurant before that but he used to drink in there and the barman in there was an ex-convict who became their driver who became the character Parker yes my lady so him and Sylvia used to drink in that pub and I only found out the other day actually that Sylvia's gravestone or where she's buried is in Bray so if you want to go and see it literally on the gravestone it says uh, Sylvia Beatrice Anderson um, and she was co-creator of Thunderbirds and the voice of Lady Penelope, a pioneer for women in television and the beloved sister of Betty Brighton Thomas. So she died, unfortunately, on the 23rd of May, 1986. But if you'd like to go and see Lady Penelope's gravestone for whatever reason, uh, it's in Bray. So, yes, it's all very local. Uh, yeah, uh, which means I... That's why I'm here, really. There has, that's exactly why I'm here, because there's too many serendipitous things like that going on. So that was, that was great. And, and actually, she, was, she, she is a good, great character, Lady Penelope. Yes. And she's kind of a role model. And I also understand, you know, I'd like to go further into this, relation, this uh, ex-con behind the bar, because as we, would, as we were voicing it, I understood, Sam, I don't know if you ever picked up, but was there something, some vibe going on between Parker and Lady P? Oh, what, you mean, you know, he fancied a bit of uh, Innuendo. There was definitely some innuendo. They may well have been, but, you know, I, I think I was about five at the time when I was watching it, so any innuendo that was going, I might have to go back and watch it. But, uh, no, I, I think... Um, Joanna Lumley's character in Abfab, I certainly think she probably based it on Lady Penelope. If you look at the hair, you look at the style oh, of yes. her, I'm pretty sure that if, you, if Joanna Lumley was asked that she probably took some of the character from there as well. 
I agree, and that fits really well. You know, Lady Penelope is a wooden doll, but she must be one of the most enigmatic and memorable characters in television history. And of course, the Anderson couple, Jerry and Sylvia, they created some fantastic series which people uh, love even today. You know, Thunderbirds has had many incarnations, Captain Scarlet. And oh, I loved Captain Scarlet. And uh, Marina, another Aqua character. Aquamarina, yeah. Aquamarina with Sting her Rain, own... Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, because the number plate on uh, the Parker, pink Parker car, was... If you, Can you remember what it would be? Uh, no. F-A-B. Oh, yes! F-A-B. F-A-B-1. Yes. And, of course, when you listen to... Uh, Stingray, yes, uh, and Thunderbirds as well. It often would say "Fab Scotty," yes, yes, and then and <laughs> it was translated over, and um, yeah. So I, I I always think that he was a genius producing all those kids programs because yeah. I loved them all. Yeah, um, I'm just looking at some pictures here. If you look on the internet, you can see pictures of the pink Rolls Royce that they used in the set outside um, Clifton, yes, uh, up in at, at uh, the Manor. That's right. So it's amazing, yeah. It was all based somewhere around here, a lot of That's it. That's right. And they did a lot of the filming in Slough, and there was recently a whole series made uh, of, of undiscovered uh, Thunderbirds track, um, and that was filmed at um, Slough Trading Estate by Century 21. So maybe we'll do a show, hopefully, if I ever get invited back, about that. But, um, yeah, she was an iconic character, and um, people remember so much of, of Thunderbirds. So, yes, I really, um, I think it's a bit weird to identify and have as your role model um, a lady puppet, but uh, she's mine. Okay. We, well, I'm very good with that. That's fine by me. <laughs> we will, we will, I, I, I'm just trying to get my head around all those great shows you've done. That's pretty impressive, actually. Well done. I was very fortunate. But just going back to Thunderbirds, mm. did you know that the Shadows, they actually made an instrumental song of uh, Lady Penelope, and there was quite a close connection between Cliff Richard and the Shadows oh, really? and the Thunderbirds series. Well, we might try and find that and <laughs> play that one out. Now, um, this show that you're launching today is called The Big Question, so we found out a little bit about you now and, and your amazing background. So this, tell us a little bit about what this show is going to be doing going forward. The thing I've discovered in my work, Sam, is that I really, really love interviewing and I, I really have turned myself into a news junkie. So what we're going to be looking at in this show, the big question is, forget about me, hopefully now, and we're going to be looking at um, the major news stories of the day and, and our slant on them. I'll have a guest as well as your good self in the studio um, and maybe the guest will be, will talk about it too. Um, so mainly focusing on that, having some music, also looking at what the guest has been doing in their life, why they're interesting, why, why have I invited them on. Um, and we'll be playing some music a little bit to do with the guest and also um, then looking at some of the local news as well. But it'll be quite different to the other River Radio shows, I hope. Okay. And who are some of the guests that we can, again, remind us, some of the guests that are coming up? The first one um, is going to be Terry Marsh. Now, she was vice president of the Sci-Fi Channel, but one of her claims to fame um, that I didn't know about, actually, was that she brought sex education for girls into 
British television oh, right. by the BBC. And okay. she also pioneered maths and science. So she's a STEM. She's a STEM. <gasps> Actually, I've just realised who Terry Marsh is. Her daughter is Carrie Marsh. Yes. Carrie's one of my closest friends. You are joking. I just realised the connection. Oh, you know everybody, Sam. So Carrie... So what we have here in front of us in the studio is this thing called My Flipping World, which was produced by Carrie Marsh. Yes, Carrie Marsh is a bit of an inventor. Yes, she's been a friend of mine for 20 years. Good heavens. Yeah, she's married to... Um, Very nice guy. Yeah. Very nice <laughs> she's guy. She's got four boys. Yes. Totally mad. Yes. Um, yes, no, last time, well, one time, Carrie and I were in Trafalgar Square, we went out drinking, and because of her background being a gymnast, Carrie decided to do big backflips all the way through Trafalgar Square, which I will tell Terry about. <laughs> I'll, I'll ping Carrie and let her know that I'll be, we'll be interviewing her mum. Gosh, what a small world. It didn't dawn on me. And then when you suddenly said the last part about the STEM. Yes. Then I got it. Yes, right. because Terry headed up a charity which was to do with the, uh, an organisation. I think Princess Anne is the patron. Okay. Uh, which is to encourage girls to come into science. But, I mean, uh, listeners, uh, Sam uh, is the person I know with the biggest contact book and the most special contact book in the world, probably probably bigger than the Dalai Lama's, including his dog, Willow, that we can hear guesting on the show this week. Um, so this just goes to prove it. What can I say? Well, we've had phones, we've had dogs, so maybe next week I won't bring the dog <laughs> and you'll turn the phone off. Anyway, that's, that's just the way sometimes live radio goes. Now... Um, what are you going to talk about this week is the big question. What would you like to well, talk I was, about? Well, I was going to kick off with the G7, but then after what happened on television, of course, the, the Euros have started, um, Euro Championships. But after what happened um, on, you know, to everybody's horror, that is the number one story yeah. today. Christian Eriksen collapsing on the pitch um, in, in the match against, um, against uh, Finland last night. And... Uh, both teams were shocked and um, it's sort of emerging that most probably people are saying, the doctors are saying that it was a cardiac arrest, but obviously until further um, tests are done, uh, they're not going to find out. But I thought there were several things here. I mean, first of all, it was a big shock and listening to the commentary today, I, I heard uh, Peter Schmeichel um, uh, Kasper Schmeichel's um, father sounding very distressed and he said that he wasn't very happy I don't know whether we can say this but he wasn't very happy this came out on the BBC he said he, he was surprised that UEFA suggested that the match continue he said both teams were in shock neither was really able to play and people, fans were shocked as well I don't know what you think but I, I, I also took away that the training of the medics, the, the five-second reaction of uh, Mancunian Anthony Taylor, the, the referee, to, to stop the match and have medics come on. And the way um, uh, Simon Kjær, the Den Danish captain, immediately rushed and started doing CPR on, um, on uh, Christian Eriksen. All of these reactions, I really felt I was seeing um, character and the best of humankind yeah i mean the rea i didn't see it live unfortunately i was out but i think the the i was listening on the radio to it and yeah it was amazing how everyone reacted so quickly i, I was a little perturbed that um 
I think the BBC have been castigated for leaving cameras on too long. Um, and the other one was, I, I thought it was a little bit worrying. I thought when his wife was asked to come onto the pitch, which has never been done before, I think his wife has... Um, Sabrina. Br- yeah, brought to the pitch. And I just thought, oh my God, is this because he's about to die? And I thought, that's just very, very, you know, why, why can't we just deal with the man, the issue, take him to the side, why bring the wife? I mean, that's a long walk across a pitch in front of you know, lots of people. That's just a very personal moment for her where she's, you know, being looked at. I didn't think that was right, maybe. Um, But it's not the first time that UEFA has said the game should go on. Um, After, as an example, Heysel, where Mm. Liverpool played Juventus and 39 fans died, Mm. um, you suddenly had the game still put on after. And if you, as a big Liverpool fan, um, I remember watching that game on TV in horror. Mm. And then uh, I've subsequently heard interviews from the Liverpool players about that night and they were literally in shock. They were just going through the motions. I mean, at the time, Liverpool were the, you know, the, the best team in Europe at the time. They should have won that match easily. Um, and they, I think they just didn't, you know... It, it, it's Bill Shankly's famous quote is, um, football is more important than life itself, you know, but in the, those circumstances, you can't really say that. And... Uh, you know, I wish um, Christian Eriksen all the best, but I suspect that's the end of his career. It is very tragic. Now, I, uh, if I can just come back on that, um, I think Gary Lineker on on March the day last night was saying that um, we do apologise, or he tweeted it, tweeted it out actually. Mm. He he explained that um, he felt uncomfortable about BBC cameras still rolling. And he, I think he. It was said that UEFA um, kept the cameras rolling. Not. I mean, I don't want to castigate them in any way, but just that that's what happened. And um, uh, Peter Schmeichel this morning said that sh- um, Sabrina Eriksson came on, um, and she was distraught. Mm. And um, I think with you, people felt that that shouldn't have been seen. Uh, and she, but she actually was under the impression that he'd passed away. Mm. Well, she wouldn't know. I mean, yes. the awful thing about it was they were doing CPR. They had a defibrillator. Yes. She was entering in an environment where she was unaware. Yes. Uh, look, I've, I've been unfortunate enough to see the loss of both my parents. But I remember when my dad was 50, he had an angina attack. And I remember just opening the surgery doors in the hospital and him wired up. And I just broke down. It's a very personal moment. There's someone you love in a, a distressed situation. And for her, she's walking across a pitch not knowing whether her husband's alive or dead, potentially could be dead. And I just don't think it should have happened. Yes. But, you know, there you go. These yes. things do happen. And I'm sure, you know, with hindsight, people would do things differently. And always in hindsight, you can. But um, in the moment, it seemed a bit odd. Yes, I agree. I mean, I had to turn the radio off where I was dropping my daughter to um, a, a friend's. And uh, after I heard the basics of the news, I said, I turned it off. My daughter said, why didn't you want to hear any more? I said, well, no, because it's just now conjecture. No one actually knows what's going yeah. on. And the media is just going to sit here and make up stuff uh, and say stuff because they just don't have anything, but they've got to fill time. And I just thought, no, I don't want to listen to pontification from, you know, on high from these media guys. So I just switched the radio off and did something else that was anyway. very mature of you well w- what was i going to learn i mean you know I, I i'd found out he was okay he was on the sideline good luck to christian anyway 
Cool. Now, what's your second big question of the weekend? Well, um, what's been happening at the G7? Mm. You know, what's been happening at the G7? Do tell. Well, um, you know, the G7 are these meets, which are actually quite jolly to be at. To be frank, I, I, I miss. Have you them. been to them? I've been to G7s when oh, they've wow. happened in in the UK and and uh, G20s and Commonwealth heads of government meeting, and they're quite electric in terms of you you meet other you know the the cream of the journalist crop are there right and so you get to meet your heroes that's why i wasn't there john john snow (laughs) and people like that you know and um um and and there's a there's a sort of heightened sense of tension especially when the american president is around um and so, but the it, what they are are the you know all the so-called advanced countries of the world, the, the sort of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, UK, US, and Japan. It was a G eight for a while, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Who that's left? What, was it? I don't. The remember. Russians. That's it. Yes. Bye bye, Ruskies. <laughs> yes, and they still want to come back in. But anyway, that's a separate story. Yeah, they don't want them. I mean. Uh, I think what's I think probably one of the most interesting things about this one is the way uh, looking at its first it's Biden's first one as a, as a president. Um, people have been interested to see how it, how geopol- geopolitics is being reset. Yeah, shame he got the RAF as the RFA. Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry, Joe. You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna get it, come over here. At least get the names right. You know, bit of prep work. Especially as they lent their hanger for for all the American servicemen exactly. to give him a rousing welcome, so Ooh-ha. it would look would look good on the telly back home. Yeah. Um, but uh, so um, yes, that and but uh, yes, that that aside, that aside, yeah. he has you know Trump was very very isolationist. And Biden has been very much metaphorically um, putting his arms around Europe and the other countries that have attended, and he's said he said that we want to um, we want to re- reconfigure this alliance and, mm-hmm. and cement it. And I think what's interesting is that he's now identifying China and Russia um, as the new potential threats, quite explicitly. And so they're organized, they, they've called them, you know, they're talking about this Atlantic alliance now, this new relationship. Um, and, and I mean, of course, they what they do is on a Sunday on, on the G7s or the G8s, as they used to be, they issue a communique. So as journalists, we always wish we, we want to sit, read what's in that communique. It's actually meaningless because they can't pass any laws. But... Um, but what they can do is sort of express the way they want to go. And this this year, they're talking about climate change, of course. Um, it's a little bit hollow when uh, Boris Johnson flew to the s- summit in Cornwall. You know, that didn't quite marry with the message. But um, anyway, they're talking about climate, green credentials, and wanting to improve that side. And they're also um, talking about establishing a coordinated health system to, um, so that they can stamp on pandemics in the future. And I think that's a noble thought, but it remains to be seen how, how that would be done. Well, how will it be done? I mean, I think when Obama was in power, they, uh, they had a pandemic um, task force ready and... Trump immediately broke that whole thing up. And so when the pandemic actually hit, there was no one there in preparation for the Americans. I mean, 
I, again, I don't think we were fully prepared. Um, I think we were caught short. And this is a bit strange, given that Bill Gates, in uh, a TED Talk many, many years before, had talked about it. Uh, there'd even been a film called Contagion about it. So um, hopefully, we, we know as humans now that there will be another pandemic, there will be another virus. We have seen several that didn't make pandemic level. So SARS, bird flu, Ebola, uh, all potentially could have become pandemics. They were, they were thankfully caught before they, they uh, escaped into velocity. Um, and unfortunately, with COVID-19, it didn't get caught and it, it, it did spread. Um, and we've seen the variants. So th- I think humanity now is going to have to be in a constant state of preparation. Uh, I don't believe we're going to have the opportunity to sit back on our laurels um, because I'm sure that uh, there is currently others. Now, there is a potential cure for all of this, by the way. What sorts that, Sam? So I've just finished reading a book uh, about CRISPR. Um, and CRISPR is the gene editing technology. Uh, it's a brilliant book, and um, it's about the scientist who created it, and she, not he, created it. Um, and basically, the book uh, covers the whole idea of how she um, moved forward, I guess, from just being a curious person in uh, just science to fundamentally becoming... I'm just looking up the title of the book for you, because it, it is a fascinating book, and um, uh, where's it gone? It's in my list, and I'm just looking for it very rapidly. He says because I've got Tarzan Economics. If you have fancy that, <laughs> that's a good book by yeah, Will Page. Yeah, um, Amazon Unbound. Yeah, <laughs> just going through my books, uh, which isn't very very useful. Gerald Ratner, The Rise and Fall of. But um, no, I'll get to it here. Uh, ah, I don't know when you, when you find time to do your reading. Uh, why We Sleep, okay. <laughs> the book I should read. Uh, no, I'll, it's Jennifer Doudner is the, okay. is the scientist. She's an amazing scientist. And fundamentally what she's saying with CRISPR, they could do gene editing on us as humans and fundamentally protect us from COVID. I see. That's a really interesting theory and so, I'm sure it'll come to fruition. Well, I think if we go through more pandemics, let's say if we go through two or three in this century and the effect of those pandemics are to cause what it's done, you know, it's world global um, economic damage, then I suspect that there will be certain people, certainly the rich, who will say, look, actually, you know what, I don't want to be keep doing this. I'm going to take some gene editing and it'll be in the form of some very simple operation or an injection because it's, um, it's an injection of RNA, not DNA. So it's RNA that creates it. It's a protein. And that injection will change our genetic makeup and give us that protection against um, COVID. So I, I can see that, you know, uh, where we are today is fine and we are coming out of it. But uh, I wouldn't be saying we're at green. I'd be saying we're at amber and uh, cautious, have to remain cautious, I think, for many years to come. Yeah, indeed. And I think, you know, the in, in the initial waves, the way the um, Far East reacted to um, the pandemic because they'd been through SARS, you know, um, especially countries like um, um, sort of uh, Vietnam and, and those kind of countries where the incidence has been so low 
Um, I think they were they were they were much more prepared, um, South Korea and so on. So um, uh, I I think that there are lots of lessons to learn for this one. But one of the other messages that came out from G7 was that um, the various leaders have said that together they will make sure that the underprivileged countries of the world get one billion vaccines. Now, uh, that sounds, of course, we know that countries like India um, and other poorer nations which aren't prepared and which are suffering very badly um, are are not getting the vaccines, let alone have the infrastructure to, to deal with them. But Oxfam has come back with a comment and said, actually, it's 11 billion that's required to get anywhere near solving the issue. So 1 billion sounds like a lot, but um, it's, again, not enough. Um, so, but I think there, there's, there's another thing that's come out um, that I, I actually covered in my book, Sam, and that's, why, that's the main reason I know about it, is that China um has been slowly and i'm sure you're across this this belt and road initiative mm-hmm. it's a kind of part of what used to be the old silk road the trading route between europe and china that plus plus some across the world basically china's um plowing hundreds of thousands of dollars into countries like africa asia europe too to um, build ports, to build infrastructure, trains, and they've got many, many countries that have signed up. And this is all about, um, it sounds as though it's helping these countries, but it's also also about linking transport systems and strengthening China's um, influence across the world. And um, I think the US sees this as a bit of a threat. So that's why they've sort of tried to come out with this sort of Atlantic charter that they've announced at this at this summit. Well, <clears throat> there's two parts of that. The first part you very, very true. The Silk Road 2.0 is exactly what China's strategy is. It's a long-term strategy. They they have most of the raw minerals from Africa now secured. They've got uh, ports in Ceylon, which they never had, or Sri Lanka. Um, there's a great book that I'm currently reading called Prisoners of Geography by Tim Marshall, um, oh. which talks about the whole thing. I read, I've read the other book, which is Silk Road, about the Chinese strategy as well. And, and both of those are looking at how China is building. Actually, one of the things that China never has had is a uh, navy. It's had a massive army, but never a navy. And it never really invested into a navy because it built the Great Wall of China. So it locked out the world and never really needed the trading because of the Silk Road through ports. So they never, uh, they never felt the need for the South China Sea to be something that they had to defend against. But uh, with the American uh, military now having the capacity with, uh, to go into the South China Sea, uh, the Chinese have, over the last 20, 30 years, been building up their naval power as well. And these warm water ports that they've got all the way ar- along the uh, Indian Ocean and all the way around. And also, I don't know if you've, uh, you probably are aware, but they've been uh, reclaiming um, mm. islands in the South China Sea and putting military bases on them. So I think there's a massive conflict of power going on right now underneath our noses, both an economic one with China and also a military one with China. And Biden's aware of it. And Trump 
Trump said things, but actually did everything else. So his daughter was given patents in China for selling her clothes and all sorts of licenses. So he was milking the cow, basically, in China, What on the one hand, while, you know, blaming them for um, calling it the China flu. Um, and, you know, but but in the back of it, he was, he was basically doing every deal he could to... He's like a mafia boss. I mean, someone in America, please put that man in jail. Hurry up. Oh... Jeez Louise. Anyway, back to you. Right, I'm off my soapbox. Go. No, I think that's really interesting. And and it is something that we do keep covering um, uh, now. Uh, um, and I think it's, it's an area of conflict, actual conflict, and an area to watch a hotspot mm. in the world in coming weeks. So we'll keep an eye on that, Sam. And in the meantime, to close out, I just throw forward to next week and say, I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to the show i'm going to say goodbye from sam and me and um and we'll play out with with, what are we going to play out with sam it's a classic it's a little bit of monty python thank you and well done ronnie great show um things in life are bad they can really make you mad other things just make you swear and curse when you're chewing on life's gristle that grumble Give a whistle And this'll help things turn out For the best And Always look on The bright side of life Always look on The light side of life If life seems jolly rotten There's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Ain't always look on the bright side of life Come on Always look on the bright side of life For life is quite absurd the final word You must always face the curtain with a bow Forget about your seat Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance and out So always look on the bright side of death Just before you draw your terminal breath a piece of shit when you look at it life's a laugh and death's a joke it's true you'll see it's all a show keep them laughing as you go just remember that the last laugh is on you and always look on the right